Welcome to First Generation Burden, a podcast dedicated to immigrants in the creative community. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. So thank you for dropping in today. We have a really great conversation for you. It's with poet, writer, educator, and friend Shayla Lawson. She has a brand new book out called This Is Major, Notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls, and Being Dope. Uh, it's a mix of personal stories, pop culture observations, and insights into politics and history. I'm reading directly from Harper Collins' website, by the way. Lawson sheds light on these questions as well as the many ways black women and girls have influenced mainstream culture from their style to their language and even their art and how major they really are. So that new book releases this month. That's June 2020. It's with HarperCollins. Make sure you check it out and get a copy. And as we're recording this, obviously we're in a crazy once-in-a-lifetime moment in this country, which is the backdrop of this conversation, as it is with so many conversations right now, and rightfully so. We touch on a lot of topics like race, identity, and the narrative surrounding people of color in this country uh, we don't really hold anything back. It feels like honest conversation, uh, which I love and I believe is the heart of this podcast. Uh, but before all that, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and drop a review. Without further ado, here's Shayla Lawson. Shayla Lawson, thank you so much for joining us today. Author, poet, educator, also hula hooper extraordinaire. <laughs> <laughs> oh my mini talent yeah exactly but uh, i saw that the other day on your ig feed i was like holy shit she is fucking great at this oh i have a like i have a story about this too oh really like, yeah because my bio used to actually say um amateur acrobat because i used to be into you know i wanted to join the circus i used to do the circus stuff so i actually have busted both of my acls and probably shouldn't do you know i've, I've had acl reconstruction on both of my knees because oh my god of my really? love of this kind of stuff so i busted my first acl because of a youtube video i found called which you'd love. It was breakdancers versus hoopers. <laughs> I, you're right. I do love that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, you know, I decided that I was invincible and that I could learn like breakdance level hula hoop tricks. I learned the hard way I was not. <laughs> so I used to, I was like, you know, jumping in and out of the thing. And it was, a, it was, a, you know, it was a vibe for a minute. Oh my God. Glasses are gone. <laughs> it looked like you, you've been doing that since you were a kid or something. It looked like it was just ingrained in your DNA. That's wild. I, it's definitely something that I love trick. I love anything that involves getting to learn how to do something different with my body. Um, right. And so I've been, you know, going through different iterations of that for a very long time. I've done, I've done pole. I've done Lyra. Um, you know, I took dance for a hot minute. I was terrible at it, but you know, it's a, you know, it's, it's a big, it's a great part of the release. Well, I'm, I'm in my mind all day as a writer. And so being able to get out of that and into my body, um, using circus arts to do it has been a great way. Circus arts. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So thanks for joining us today. You have a new book called This is Major, Notes on Diana Ross and Being Dope. Congratulations. I know that released not too long ago. I'm waiting it's for my copy. Scary. Yeah. It's yeah. actually coming out in a couple of weeks, no? Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Because I yeah. saw some interviews that you did last month. I thought it was already out and I was able to get my copy it's technically on transit i've no idea oh yeah that's because you know of the all the the hype uh you know all the hype promotional stuff they have to make it seem like you know it's like a movie it's like it's it's always coming but it, yeah right. 6 30 is the actual drop date oh understood okay well i'm glad i'm glad that harper collins has you on that uh that summer drop <laughs> right <hype train. laughs> no 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 yeah yeah so we'll see how it goes for sure. So uh, for our listener, normally this conversation, this podcast is usually about um, where we usually talk to um, immigrants within the creative space. Um, but I thought, well, A, first of all, I think you're so dope. and I think your work is dope. And um, conversations, I think, right now around race, identity and otherness, which are usually intrinsic to this podcast, I think are affecting like all of us in our in our psyche um, on top of the fact that you're promoting a, a great piece of work. So um, thank you for for joining us and helping us break format today. Well, thank you for having me, Rich, too. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, yeah, so the way we start this podcast is um, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from, and then I would love for us to talk about your creative journey. Yeah, I, I was born in Minnesota. 
I grew up in Kentucky. I moved around a lot when I became an adult. So I've lived in New York twice. Um, I've lived in the Netherlands. I've lived in Venice, Italy. Uh, I went to grad school in Bloomington, Indiana. And I also lived in Portland, which is something I share with you, the Portland, New York migration. <laughs> yeah, that's how we, I think that's how we connected at that yes. party. Shout out to Howard. Uh, Grandison, <laughs> who throws like great apartment parties. <laughs> yep, yeah. So that was, you know, our you had me at Portland. Moment. <laughs> um, so I think what's cool about coming on your por- podcast is one of the things that I uh, that is a big part of my creative journey and is a big part of the book is thinking about the idea of um, the model minority and how it extends beyond just a first gen conversation. Yes. Um, yes. So one of the things that I was really interested in looking at is for me growing up, I actually had a pretty strong connection to um, a first-gen conversation and first-gen people because of the fact that my father is a physician. So he did his residency at Mayo Clinic. Most of the kids that I grew up around were first-gen. And in the first chapter in the book, one of the things that I talk about is that in rural Rochester, Minnesota, back in the 80s, um, people didn't look at you if you were a person of color and think that you were a gangster or think that you um, were, you know, s- some kind of dirty immigrant. They assumed that you were either um, a lawyer or a doctor or um, some kind of computer scientist because those <laughs> were those were that they had, you know, they had IBM, they had Mayo Clinic. That was their stereotype. Right, right. Um, so those are this- those are the model minority buckets right there. Right. And so there's a story that begins, um, what, you know, one of the first essays in which my mom and her Ghanaian friend, um, shout out to the Sandos, <laughs> they entered a Hallmark greeting card store, like something that only existed in the 80s and doesn't exist anymore. And the woman is like, oh, good. I'm so glad you showed up. I need to go across the street and go pick up a cake. And Nana, uh, my mom's Ghanaian friend, had just moved to Minnesota from Connecticut. And she couldn't believe that this was the way that they treated black people here because she had never seen a situation in which somebody looked at a black person in America and thought, Oh, this person is safe. This person is, is smart and safe and will protect my <laughs> things probably better than a white person would. Um, so <laughs> growing up in that kind of community, I had a very different representation of what blackness was that I also had to relearn as a tool of white supremacy that right. was useful for this community to set this certain portion of uh, the BIPOC population apart and say that we were better, we were different, we were not like the other ones, as a way to ensure that we continue to uh, perpetuate this myth that there is a difference between good minorities and bad minorities. Right, right. I, I was I was reading through. Uh, thank you for sending me the digital copy of your book. I was I was slipping through some pages, and I was, um, you know, in in research of this, and also just wanting to get a jump start on it. And I the the introduction when you're talking about wanting to get a, an American Girl doll, uh, and then also yeah, exactly. So like the and you know all the all the uh, racial implications of of even representation within toy culture, even mm-hmm. going back into the you know 80s and 90s, and you know even seeing you know a level of skin tone which i i feel now isn't necessarily taboo but there's more regularity but it's still i think in the back of people's minds somewhat unusual i feel um for um you know even on a manufacturer perspective even, even though we can push the conversation forward it's so it's always it's always barriers invisible barriers to to break through yeah and i think one of the, the things that becomes so difficult is that we get so excited about a small level of acceptance um, in terms of an individual that we sometimes feel it's impolite or that it's against the movement to get outraged about there being larger conversations. I think with toys, like it's a perfect example because with um, Addie, it was this idea that we're supposed to be excited because there's a slave doll. 
And I started thinking about why that was such a problem for me as a child, the fact that I did not want to play with this doll. And I talked to so many girls, um, primarily Black, but a lot of girls from, uh, from other races. I talked to first-gen girls. My, my roommate is Nija, and they actually owned an Addie doll. And we talked about the difference culturally because for them, it was a piece of American history that was slightly outside of their bodies. It was like, here is our way of representing Black American history in our family by bringing in this doll. Um, for my family, for me and my sister, it was a representation of how we were supposed to think of ourselves, that we were supposed to think about ourselves as American citizens, as people who were once owned. And instead of take of uh, pushing the take that that is essential in terms of conversations about what slavery is, what, col- what colonization is, right. that without without slaves petitioning to be free, Americans' sense of what freedom is would be entirely different. Um, we had to conceptualize the idea of freedom because everybody else was already free. Right. Or at least the way that it, and that's another part of the myth because America's first slaves were the Irish and we completely erase that. We, when we look at this conversation of like the police state and the way that things have been moved, what happened with the poor white Irish who were originally brought here as slaves is that they were turned into the original um, slave, black slave patrols to give them a sense that their whiteness, their model minority status, gave them an elevation above blackness. Right. And that's something that we're continuing to deal with now in terms of why the police operate the way that they do, because they were built out of a system that was meant to continue to perpetuate white supremacy as a means of control. Totally. So, you know, when you're, when you're looking at a doll and that's what it represents to you, it is a very different yeah. story. Um, it's, we're getting so deep so fast. I kind of love it. Like, <laughs> I know, for real. Uh, uh, you just did that different than our party conversation. <laughs> for the listener, you just did like the whole the whole get out like right into the into the into the deep. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So That's for funny. for the Addy doll, because I'm looking at it right now on on American Girls website. It yeah. it they contextualize at least according to them the Addy doll as an American hero. Um, it it seems to be some sort of a symbol of resilience. I I would. I would guess mm-hmm. that the American Girl Company has is trying to position that doll. What is the the case for invalidating that narrative in accordance with like the pain of the history of slavery and also the pain of the the origins of uh, the police and law enforcement organization in this country? Like how do how do we have um, a proper conversation around um, creating a hero of of an Addy type? Does that question make any sense? Am I completely totally. out of line? And it's actually the question that I had to answer for myself in writing the essay. And what I love about what happened for me at that moment is that I had to go into indigenous history. I had to start reading back and think about what this country is. So when we're, when we're looking at these conversations of, of allyship and the Black Lives Matter movement, I think one of the things to, to, that, I, that I have to keep in my mind is I think about how Angela Davis and Audre Lorde always talk about the ways that you can't have these conversations without an intersectionality that is based on gender, that's based on race, that's based on socioeconomic class. So the struggle in Palestine is the struggle for Black Americans. The struggle of indigenous culture is the struggle of Black Americans. And so unless I, in my own allyship, start to look at the ways that other people are also experiencing these things and I'm missing something. So when I started doing a lot of reading about indigenous history, one of the things that stuck out to me that actually showed up today in the form of a meme is uh, (laughs) there's a lot of indigenous um, protesters that are saying, we need to stop saying we own the streets. What we need to say is we own the land. Um, And the reason why that sticks out to me is because of what it's saying when we say that Addie is a representation of black history for young black children. What we're saying is that Black children don't own their bodies. There's no reason to start African-American history with a doll that tells us immediately that your entry point into this country is a place where you don't own your body, especially when we look at what African-American history has been. There is a brief period of time in which um, 
the American Girl Collection, for instance, uh, featured a Creole doll, so a doll that had French and Black heritage, um, that comes out of a, a different conversation, that comes out of a different conversation of wealth and prosperity. Um, they discontinued that doll within a couple of years because it's a story that's not convenient to sell. It's not a story that privileges the place of, of whiteness as um, the centered conversation. Anytime we as people of color have started to develop um, independently and, you know, and in solidarity, these places start to get destroyed. I mean, we, we see that, that the ways that um, allyship between multiple communities that originally made up, for instance, like the Black Panther Party gets mm. lost into this very uh, militant revolutionary way of looking at what it was, or even the ways that we will look at at King and Malcolm X as being two versions of a very, very different parts of the civil rights movement conversation, despite the fact that they were friends. When right. we say that this is a place to start with a black doll is with slavery, we are also erasing the fact that for America to even exist, for America to even think about itself in right. the way that it wants to, it included the massacre of an enti entire nations of people that we don't even talk about. Yeah, so like in so in that conversation, I just started thinking that the issue is that to teach children that they could ever be owned, that the land could ever belong to America to begin with, is all it's all just wrong. Right. Now, like it, as a first a, thought. Yeah, as a yeah. first thought, you know, because there's so many different places to go. I was talking with a little girl who's a big um, American Girl fan on Instagram. And one of the things that we came to was just the idea of, you know, why don't we start with like Madam C.J. Walker's daughter as a story? Yeah. You know, a, sto a story of black, well, we don't even, you know, if people recognize the name Madam C.J. Walker, they don't even think about the fact that her daughter, Alelia, had a pretty rich, uh, crazy, and also, you know, reportedly queer life in Harlem <laughs> that was pretty, you know, that was pretty raucous, or that she raised um, a girl that they adopted. And she also had like a very beautiful life. There, there are points of beauty that are not just singular in the lives of African-Americans that have absolutely nothing to do with the fact at some point, you know, they have a story like Addie in which you open up the book and immediately it's trauma porn. It's like, oh, look, she's running from dogs and her father and her brother, she will never see again. Right. That's, and it, that's, it, that's still such a part of America's story for African-American people that it's not a great place to start psychologically if you're a child because we haven't shifted that much. That's still a reality. There, yeah. We don't, you know, from, from minute to minute, from morning to morning right now, I struggle with the idea that I might get a call from somebody that I care about that the person that they love most is gone. I think of it, I, you know, my sister has been arrested in the way that George Floyd was. Hands, you know, hands behind her back, knee in the back. Like, I can't look at what's going on and then tie that back to something like a slave doll and look at it as innocent. It's totally. the way that we've been told that we're supposed to look at ourselves as black people. I was uh, watching The Daily Show. I was watching a clip of The Daily Show not too long ago. And they had uh, some guests, I think uh, Jason Reynolds and um, Ibram X, uh, I, I think I'm remembering correctly. And they were talking about the, the first racist, like before, mm -hmm. uh, before when, um, there were just, you know, continents and, and, you know, global regions where it's like, you know, you have people in Asia, you have people in the Americas, you have people mm -hmm. in Africa. And then all of a sudden, the second that uh, a human being is, is, you know, their life doesn't become theirs anymore. Then, you know, that's, the beginning of our modern contextualization of what racism is. I thought it was such an yeah. interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I, I agree. What do you think about the, uh, you talk about white supremacy in your book, right? And then I, I've been reading some interviews. Yeah, you do. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you have an interesting twist on it where you talk about white supremacy. Like it seems like it's more um, a, a being, being complicit in a narrative and not correct me if I'm wrong, but not taking ownership of the narrative for yourself. Uh, it, it, what, what is your POV on what seems like a very insidious and not so much vocalized version of white supremacy? I think that we all need to come to terms with the fact that we have been indoctrinated in white supremacy more than we have any other culture, irrespective of where we're coming from in America. 
because even if we're looking at a first-gen conversation, we're looking at people who were propelled to support the American dream. The idea that you can come here and America is this land of vast privilege that you can accumulate. And we know that part of the model minority myth is the idea that the, um, those people who have been able to participate it in its fullest already came with privileges from the country that they came from. You know, they came here already with the, the skill set to be um, doctors or lawyers or with the ability to move in, the, in, in society in that way. When we're looking at the way that white supremacy operates, it needs this tiered system that doesn't just belong to white people. There has to be this separation between all of us in order for it to continue to work because somebody's got to be on top. And I think we'll usually... what when we use the term white supremacy, we use it to refer to white nationalists. We use it to refer to a political stance that's extreme. We don't use it to apply to, for instance, um, going through an educational system where people expect you to take on a nickname, even if it's not the name that you use in your family, because they won't be bothered to learn the, the syllabic pronunciation of a name that sounds un-American. Or when you go to school and, you know, what happened to me, my sister, and all my friends is we would always be assigned the one book report of the one important Black person. It's like, why wouldn't you want to do a book report on Benjamin Banneker or uh, Muhammad Ali or right. Mary Bethune? You know, like, and, and so we were supposed to stand up, we were taught very young to stand up in front of this class and report on the five or so individuals that our teachers had decided were important of black people to pay attention to. And it gets, the tears get even more insidious than that. And, you know, I talk about as a child, especially coming from Kentucky, that um, I would see black children disappear out of the school system. They wouldn't make it past the first few years. When I was an architect, I moved from architecture to uh, going to grad school for writing. And part of the impetus for that was that as a black person, I got siloed into building jails, which was kind of ironic um, as an architect. And one of the statistics that I learned was that they decide how to build jails based on third grade reading levels. So they decide that early who's going to end up in the punitive system. And I felt like I needed to be on a different side of the conversation because I went to one of those juvenile detention facilities that I helped design and I realized this whole full philosophical conversation that we put around this basketball court that was supposed to be the center of fun for the kids. And, you know, like, but we were just creating a surveillance system so that the kids could be monitored. We just built a panopticon. And I was like, there's got to be a different way to look at the world. These, you know, the conversations that we're having about, um, about the Black Lives Matter movement, the conversations that we're having about defunding police, um, these conversations are coming out of the idea of re-education. What we're trying to do is figure out a way to stop privileging the idea that we need to support this white fear that if the rest of us get a little bit more, a little bit more education, a little bit more safety for our families, um, a little bit more democracy, that we're going to come after them and try to make life difficult for them. When the only thing we really want is equality. We want the ability to make sure that we can have safe, happy, healthy lives, if not for us, then for the next generation. But white supremacy can't support that because it is the, it's built on this notion that somebody has to be on top and those people have to be defined in this particular iteration as white people. So that's what we've all learned. Um, we, we can't erase that. And I, I went through in writing the book and, and decided that I was going to take ownership for the ways that I have supported white supremacy in my own life and make this book a conscious call to action um, on my own behalf to start looking at what it's like if I privilege the narrative of black women as the majority and the places where we haven't been heard or seen. I think everything you're saying sounds so amazing. I was listening to um, Rashad Robinson from Color of Change. Mm. Like he, he, he was talking, and he, he's really amazing on camera because he's he has a lot of, he's high energy, Yeah. right? Uh, so I was hearing him talk about Black people or the Black community as the protagonist 
in the American story. And, and it was fascinating to hear um, because I think, uh, to your point, uh, when it comes to, I think, more, the more overt version of what white supremacy is seen as and also like the, the, um, the typical narrative is people talk about the, the victimization uh, of black people within this country and, and people of color. But he made an amazing point of the black community like is probably at the forefront or not probably is, is pushed so hard um, for, for education, for personal wealth um, from, from, from such a, a different space. So really as a protagonist, like th there's been so much distance made um, and it was really more of like a narrative shift um, as a step towards the empowerment and also the ownership of the narrative. I thought it was a fascinating mm -hmm. POV. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really cool way of putting it. It's definitely something that I am striving for in the ways that I try to write now. It's been interesting to play around with that because right now it, my, my, um, June Jordan, Audre Lorde, self-care routine <laughs> right now is, is uh, I'm trying to write a romance novel. Um, oh, what? <laughs> What's that cover going to look what? like? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. We shouldn't talk about covers because they tried to give me like an old Waiting to Exhale cover. Oh, like no, they did not. No, they did year. not. Really? Yeah. No, we were like, no, 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 no. That's not going to. That's not going to work, but it may work for the <laughs> new one. Um, but one of the things that was really interesting to me, I've noticed in my new writing, is all my models for what it's like uh, for romantic connection are built on white rom-coms. So it's been really hard for me to put these two characters of color, one of them is African-American, the other one is Syrian, um, in spaces where I'm not trying to recreate um, an understanding of what it, of what what whiteness usually is, the ways that whiteness is privileged. So something as simple as like there's a scene where the guy moves uh, the girl's braids out of her face. Yeah. And one of the things that she recognizes in that moment is like as an African American woman, um, people rarely touch my hair. Um, and it's not like the right. don't touch my hair conversation, which is a totally different one. It's like yeah, I don't want strangers touching my hair. But even like lovers rarely touch my hair, which I find very strange, but it's kind of this ingrained idea that you don't touch a black woman's hair. Cause it might, I've heard from people it may fall out or like, I, yeah, well, you know, like no. all sorts, all sorts <laughs> of crazy ass stereotypes. Right. So, right. Right. Like we have all sorts, like, you know, we have all sorts of different types of hair. I just remember Like I remember when I was dating a white guy in college and one of my biggest fears was like waking up and leaving coconut oil all over his pillow. <laughs> and right. and that actually happened to me one time. And he, like, oh my gosh! The way, yeah, like, the, but these are, but this is the reality of like of black women and having black women hair and figuring out a way in this this story. You know, the, part of the reason why I'm writing this romance now is because of the fact that I want to that I'm continuing my reeducation, my way of putting us in the front of the narrative. And part of that is figuring out how do I look at something like that, like the idea of having a romantic relationship with a black woman's hair and not think about the number of times I've been told that my hair is a problem. And how yeah. do I, yeah. Well, you're, you're just ringing so true for me right now in terms of, in terms of like this, the rom-com. Cause I always think about crazy rich Asians. Cause that was such a great moment for Asian yes. people oh my God. Where, where it was like, Oh, here's some Asian people in a normal fucking rom-com right. just doing their living thing. Living our lives. Living our lives. Gorgeous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, there's a there's a fucking tiger in the house or something. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, but but normal. Normal. Big. No big deal. But uh -huh. that kind of um, and I've touched on this podcast before was Asian nose politics mm. uh, because they because I mean as a Filipino person I have a button nose so my nose yeah. is on the flat side I don't have a bridge yeah. um, and um, on in the movie Crazy Rich. Uh, the grandmother, she's talking to Constance Wu and she says, oh, you have an austere nose. To me, I was just like, I'm like, oh my God. Like I've never in film seen that addressed on any level because yeah. I, I grew up with my mom and my aunties pressing my nose together so, they, so I could theoretically have a smaller nose when yeah. I was a kid. And, uh, okay. and I, I was self-conscious about it for so long, until, up yeah. until I think high school. And um, so yeah, no. Everything you're saying about hair and like kind of 
normalizing and not stigmatizing just like, you know, regular hair cultures. Like, yeah. What's taking so long? And this stuff is embarrassing. Like, it's really vulnerable yeah. for us to be sitting here talking about like our nose and our hair and how we <laughs> yeah. show. But again, like that's what it, it comes back to in terms of why why do we have we ever felt these ways about our bodies? Like that's another part of the white supremacist narrative. Like this yeah. way in which we're not enough. And yeah. that's when I sit down to write and I start investigating what it means for me to say, like, I grew up as a white supremacist. I'm not talking about like my parents actively teaching me to be anti anti black. Like I'm talking right. about the idea that everything that I saw everything that I witnessed told me I wasn't good enough. And I've been trying to fit myself into this tinier and tinier box. And then especially, you know, going out into the the world as a creative and those boxes become things that we can sell because all of a sudden it becomes cool to kind of have, you know, people, people like you and I as representations of brands um, because we talk well, we're intelligent and we've, we've become, we, by, I always hate it, but, um, people describe me quite often as being kind of like the acceptable kind of minority. Um, I know it's, it's like, I'm just like, what does that mean? I have some strongly worded emails to send to the management now. <laughs> um, so, but you know, in that world, in that realm of, I'm going to get my Karen template and then send right, this one out. I, I have my Karen templates and I am going to send out several strongly worded emails as soon as this is over. So, <laughs> but yeah, I just, I, I love the idea of just kind of being free to own the fact that some of the things that, um, that I've struggled with, that I've seen my friends struggle with, is because of this. Because I think if we start to demystify the idea of what white supremacy is, what racism is, um, it gives everybody power. I think we need to get past this place where we think of racist as a racial slur. It's not it is a you know is an objective description of the ways that people are operating in the world, which is very different than just using it as a as a catch-all to make sure um, that that we hurt people. Because especially as as people who represent a non-white conversation, we've definitely had words thrown at us that are slurs and are particularly meant to be insulting. That's not how we're trying to introduce this conversation of racism. That's not what we're trying to say when we talk about white supremacy. What we're trying to say is that some people have been comfortable at the expense of everyone else. Yeah. And we want them to investigate what that means. Like I, you know, the fact that I have to sit down and and spend all of this time rewriting a scene because I want to describe the experience of um, the Syrian man running his hands through the hair of an African-American girl and not use any references to all of the scenes I've seen like that in white culture between two white people. Like that is, that is a privileged narrative to have when the first images that come to somebody who looks nothing like you are pictures of you. Yeah. And we need to change that. We need to change that for kids. We need, I love the fact that we're seeing more representation. Like I, I cheered and cried throughout all of Crazy Rich Asians, because especially like the wedding scene, I just clapped because yes. I'm like, yes, God, like this is what we need. <laughs> no, this for is how sure, we yeah. Need. yeah, you know, like we, because it, you know, like going back to the slave doll, like what is the difference of having a doll that encapsulates that moment and tells us that's what you know, that is what a non-white identity is in America, is opulence and beauty and grace and the ability to be loved, right, which right. are all the things that are often taken away from the stories that were handed over of who we are. Right. Yeah. Why can't the first thought be about potential and yes. not, not about, you know, uh, the the lowest point theoretically within like a full like spectrum of humanity? Why why not right. just like start at, at the stars and then- yeah provide a context. And I feel like the stars is, is who we are and where we are. I mean, it like, it would be so absurd to me to like, I would protest somebody wanting to make a doll out of American Philippine occupation. Yeah, totally. You know? like, oh, I could, be, I could go off about that. <laughs> that was, it would be, it would be, you know, it would be insane. Like, it's just so aggravatingly totally. insane to think that that's something that somebody would do. Like, for sure. You're so, you know, we fought that fight and we have done so much beyond that. Um, yeah. And I just want that, that, that to be recognized. I think for, for Filipinos and also I think for, for a lot of cultures that were subject to Spanish colonization, I, I now look at 
the those cultures that have gone through that cycle of here's an an indigenous um here's an indigenous community here in whatever scale and then here comes the colonization uh partner i'll use a uh, nice word right <laughs> and then uh and then all and then there comes through the cycle of like you know um reclaiming or you know rejection and then now you're just we're here in 2020 i think about now like stuff when it comes to like skin lightener because the skin lightener yep. um business over in asia is massive you yep. know just wanting to take on the the attributes of the colonizer um because yep. even now in media like reception of 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 american um, of American imagery is another form of colonization when it goes when it goes over or back east or mm-hmm. you know to to another location. It's um it's insidious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so what totally. where was your where was your head when you were writing the book? Because obviously now this is we're in a moment, right? To put it lightly, we're in a moment. <laughs> we're we're <laughs> yeah. in a moment. So like, where what do you think in terms of a, the the takeaways from the book when you were writing it have to be different now, post COVID, post uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, like what and Tony McDade yeah. and, to, and yeah, and Tony McDade, of course, yeah. absolutely. Like what? How do you? What do you think the takeaways are now? you know, alongside the, the empowerment narrative. I live in the future. Yeah. <laughs> I live in the, in the future, Rich. Oh, um, you're just working on romance novels. That's all I give a fuck about now. <laughs> no, but that is our future. Like that is, that is us coming out of this. And that is what we need. I say that, I say that jokingly, but I think it's, it's always how I approach writing. I approach writing based on what I aggregate from the current moment and see that we're going to need. Um, so that's always been my approach. Like my last um, my last few projects, like I wrote a book of poetry. My last project was a book of poetry that I wrote about Frank Ocean. And I did that as a response to the, the um, initial years of the Black Lives Matter movement, because I thought it was really important that in this conversation of saying Black Lives Matter, you know, Black Lives Matter to whom? They've always mattered to, to my family. Uh, they've always mattered to me that it was really important to start archiving black love. Um, and then in this is major, I started thinking about where we were progressing. And part of what I noticed is a conversation that was making a lot of room, um, you know, that we that, that we were building out to be really expansive in ways that were really beautiful, but in ways that still wasn't crediting, uh, Black women. So I think, for instance, the moment where, uh, you know, not to call anybody out, but is uh, 53 percent of black, of white women voted for Trump, um, and you know, none of us did. Right. But but <laughs> that's then, a fact. That that's right, just that's, stating yeah, fact. Yeah, yeah, But that's they, you know, we still think that that's you know, that's calling people out. It's the you know, it's the same <laughs> race racist conversation. Sometimes yeah. we're talking about objective, observable facts. Yeah. So. You know, but how quickly it got glossed over that Black women were a force in a movement for change, that we could all look at the sea change of the potential of, of where we are right now. It's not that we knew this is exactly what would happen, but if you look at somebody that displays that little care in the ways that they're willing to use rhetoric to create fear and to create destruction, that person has no individual's best interest at heart, even their own. They're not even trying to protect themselves. And, and Black women, as people who have been in the homes of rich white people for generations, as domestic workers, you know, and prior to that as slaves, and you know, a whole host of other ways in which we've, we've shared a, a pretty consecrated intimacy with, a white, you know, with white power structures, uh, we knew. So that was the point where I decided that I needed to pivot the ways that I look at writing and I needed to focus on writing stories about black women. So I had all, I had all sorts of plans and dreams about how many different books I was going to write. <laughs> but then COVID happened and I was like, nope, I just want to lie around and soak pajamas and be a girl and I'm going to write this romance novel. Like that's what I'm going to do because that's where I, that's where I am. That's what I need right now. But it'll be good when we come out of this because, you know, it has travel, it has danger. But we're not trying to solve <laughs> the problem. I oh, word? Has travel and danger? Oh, shit. It has travel and danger. Because what I did, like, I, what I wanted to do, so when I looked at COVID and COVID right. hit Tell me this is like a Mr. and Mrs. Smith type of thing where, where you know, there's there's action adventure and it's going to turn into a movie where... Uh, that's the, 
you know, that's the that's the plan. Like, right, of course. You know, it's an international love story that also involves, you know, immigration and refugee camps and also, you know, like... I'm tight, tight. I love it, love we'll it. See where it. We'll see where it ends <laughs> up. But it is really funny that you mentioned, like, the Mr. and Mrs. Smith thing because there's a chapter in This Is Major where I talk about um, my first Tinder date. And um, be, so I went on my first Tinder date after I had gotten divorced. I was married before. Um, and what was really funny for me is because I had never been in this, this space before I had to kind of pretend like I was a character in a spy movie to set myself up to go on a one night stand that was, that turned out into a complete debacle, but it was, um, yeah. So like, I'm ready, I'm ready to write that kind of a story. <laughs> that was also a fun chapter to write. Cause I, um, I tied in the conversation about how black women and Asian men are the uh, least dateable on on so on all of these oh, like social yeah. dating apps. No, that's yeah. true. That's so I true. went on. Yeah, my first date was with um with a Vietnamese. Um, oh, get the fuck out of here! Your first date on Tinder was my a first Asian date, guy. Yeah, yes, my first date on Tinder was an Asian guy in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Ricky, if you are out there, <laughs> <laughs> you have made it into you know into into infamy. You know, call me. Um, yeah. <laughs> And it just got, it got really, it got really wild. Like I have this moment where I'm trying to, like, I'm, I'm talking about us like we're characters in a spy movie that like nobody would actually cast us in. Um, Cause that's, that was where I was at that point of trying to imagine, imagine myself as like, you know, actually dateable. Uh, but then it, you know, spoilers, it ends up, we end up like back at his house and his, his ex-girlfriend shows up. Oh, um, wow. That yeah, does sound but, like a movie. It, yeah. No, I can write, like, I can write this movie. You know, this kind of trouble follows me. I think it's the only reason that I live <laughs> is so that I can have the strangest, you know, I like, it's been fun. I think that's one of the things that's always fun. It's, and it's also kind of how the book got written is that I constantly throw out these stories to people where I'll be like, hey, did I ever tell you about that time that I was, you know, dating a professional soccer player and he broke up with me on my birthday at a tiki bar? You know, and then that becomes an entire that becomes an entire bit, but that's just, you know, because these stories, these stories find me. I, it's, it's a blessing. It's a curse. addiction, <laughs> You know, <it's, laughs> so yeah. I just want to talk about your creative journey just for a little bit. Cause I love everything that we're about right now. <laughs> this but, wasn't my creative journey. Sorry. <laughs> I, no, it, I don't uh, No, but I just going into your, into your uh, bio a little bit. Yes. And I know this yes. from, you know, just from being your friend, but uh, you, you were writing a uh, copy for Nike back yep. in Portland. Also, yeah. I think you've done work for Google as well. I did. And, and then you, you know, now you do long form prose as well with high, with a high level, yeah, high level of mm -hmm. success. Like yep. what is, uh, it seems like you're very polymathic in your approach to a lot of things. Like, mm -hmm. Is there a trajectory? Like, what do you think is a, piece of your success or how do you attribute that success and ability to move through so many different creative spaces um, so quickly? Cause I was in Portland, like at the same time you were and, <laughs> and you know, shit ain't easy. <laughs> so. No, no. Um, you know, blackness, rich blackness. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because people ask me this and it's actually very hard for me to answer because it's painful. I've had to learn how to pivot like this because of the only way that I could survive. People have worked their hardest to make sure that I was miserable, that I would never feel safe, that I, uh, to put me in a box and make sure that um, I never use any of the talents that I have. And I have had to fight consistently to make sure that I had a place in the world. And for that uh, to happen for me personally, it meant that I just kept figuring out ways to be flexible. I looked at the the blocks and I just kept jinging them into a structure, you know, and hope <laughs> that, that it wouldn't fall apart. And there are times that it has. Um, so my time in Portland was very fraught. I went through some horrible experiences with jobs there that I try to, make light of in the book, uh, you know, for the sake of, of fun and humor. Um, and I can't say that I'm thankful for that. One of the things that, um, that I, in, in doing the book major, I did a lot of interviews with other black women and in the black girl magic chapter, 
one of the things that one of my friends says is, you know, where are the regular black girls? Those of us who just get to be ordinary. Um, black women in particular have to be extraordinary in order to not succeed, but to survive. And I'm just a manifestation of that that has a bit more privilege. So the fact that I can do all of these things with my body, the fact that I've learned how to do all of these different things as a writer, um, it's a manifestation of the ways that my great-grandmother fought and my grandmother fought and my mother fought so that I could live in a world that was a little bit more artistic and comfortable, that I didn't have to be thoroughly ensconced in just being normal in order for that survival to take place. But just the other day, I, I went on like a, a hula hooping tirade. I'd had two cocktails and, and, and in COVID, like I realized <laughs> I'm never going to go back to my, be able to go back to like my old drinking world because two, two cocktails and a beer and I was, I was out. But I just like went off on this tirade of, of hula hooping and just the fact that, you know, when have you ever seen a white man who had to create a hula hooping video or a pole dancing video to help sell an essay collection? Nobody <laughs> who has these talents. Me. Why? Because it's the only way I can get butts in the seats. Right. Like, are you are you on TikTok? No. I'm how, too damn old. How are you I well, first of all, I disagree <laughs> that you're too damn old. I think we're I think we're the same age. But, yeah. uh, but like, with your yeah, with your hula hooping ability, I'm just saying. Like Yeah, you know. I think you you just might need to uh expand your platform presence is all I'm you saying. You know, we've 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 you know, we've gone through is like is it is it a TikTok? Is it an OnlyFans? Is it a Patreon? Like we'll figure it out. Like <laughs> I love that it, is it an OnlyFans? <laughs> is it an OnlyFans? I don't know. Like maybe. Like <laughs> we'll figure it out. We we're you know, constantly looking for other ways to approach branding. We will there. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, wow, this is crazy. We've been talking for almost forty minutes. This is this is wild. Uh, we got to do this again. Uh, so oh, definitely, I know for sure. Uh, I just want to throw a few more questions at you. I was looking at some of uh, your work on Amazon. Is one of your the collections that you've been in uh, a Marvel? Oh yeah. Okay, oh, great. This is fun. Yeah, okay, yeah. great. I want to talk about this because I'm a big comic book nerd. Also, I want to talk to you about, about your um, your love of pop culture because I think also, yeah. you know, even w- with the Frank Ocean book, um, I, I, I think you, and also with Major and also with Diana Ross in the title, pop mm-hmm. culture is a big part of your creative presence and journey. Absolutely. And, and yeah. yeah. So, well, first of all, what the fuck is that drawn to Marvel poems about comics book? I want to talk about that. Tell me about so. it. So... One of the things, you know, when I said I was going to do like that, like all those black women books that got put to the wayside, uh, one of the things that I was working on at a certain point was a bunch of poems from the perspective of women in in uh, comics. So my um, my Twitter and IG handle, Blue If I Wasn't, is actually a line from a poem that I wrote in the voice of Storm from the X-Men. Um I'll post, I'll post it. I actually have a video of me reading the poem and I'll post the video. So wow. You can see it. Um, and that was, that was the catalyst. And I did more. Um, I did like Jubilee and Psylocke and like, you know, a bunch of different oh, characters. Man. Oh, and Psylocke is an interesting case study in racial switching. Right. right? I don't know if, yeah. Right. Because they, they, <laughs> they brought her back to being British, Caucasian yep. British. Right. And, Which, which is, of course, correct. But I was like, oh, this is, it's so weird. It's so weird. This is so strange. Yeah. Like, and the, I, yeah, and I did. Yeah, I just did a bunch of, I, I was doing those at a certain point. Um, and then, like, that was, that was when the, the, there was one of, it was just one of those things where the project shifted, my focus on the project shifted because uh, the world shifted. Like, then Trayvon Martin was killed. And, like, it just didn't feel like the time for me to experience that kind of enjoyment in my poetry. Like I couldn't go back into that little kid space thinking about the way that we lost um, both him and Tamir Rice. Um, so I put that to the side, but I definitely, it's funny cause with COVID a friend of mine who's really into comics just dropped off a huge stack. Um, and we were talking comics, we were talking, I, yeah. And uh, so I'm, totally some sometime down the line i'm totally interested in going back to that especially because now i started that project like back in 2010 Mm. and we've gotten so much more 
in yeah. terms of voice and an opportunity for right. for women and femmes in comics now. So right. I really and relevance. Wanna, I wanna, and relevance. And I want to, so I definitely want to go back to that. But then I, I said it on here, so somebody's probably going to cop it before I <laughs> get it out. So, you know, oh, but that's, that's good. What were you reading back then? What were you into? I know, like, it seems like a lot of X-Men, like me too, I, I think in the the world was into X-Men. Yeah. My favorite was um, the X-Men spinoff Generation X that I think they turned into Generation Next at a certain point. Oh, like, interesting. I was, obs- I was oh, led by Jubilee was like Emma Frost and Banshee. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Like, it, was like the, it was like a new version of the New Mutants, but yep. it was 90s cool. Like they were so all... They were 90, yep. Yeah, they were all doing ollies or something. <laughs> Yeah, I was obsessed with that for a while because I just thought that I know it's always been I, I'm I'm super tied to the X-Men because of the fact that there was so much political protest written into these yeah. manifestations of these characters and how their mutant powers and the discrimination that they experienced um, was you know, goes hand in hand with the experience of being a person of color in the States um, that it was reflective of the Jewish experience. Um, right. So I, I was just, I was really into that. And then because I got like that nineties version um, that fit the time when I was reading comics, I got, I got really stuck in those stories and really wanted to investigate um, what it meant to talk out of those voices and thinking of them as colored voices. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was, that was. Do you ever think about, X-Men comics, because I guess X-Men premiered in the 60s, around 62, 63. Uh, I'm sure some some nerd is going to hit me up in my DMs and give me the specific year. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but when the X-Men came out, and and like you're saying, it was a metaphor for, um, for civil rights, yeah. right? But then the team was so multicultural from the jump. Yeah. So then in that universe, are they post-racism but but you know what i'm saying like or post-colorism like if you were to take that world now like no one uses like a a a racial epithet the typical ones that we use right yeah it's all just focused on just like anti-mutant behavior and anti-mutant no totally like no, 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 I, I totally get it. And I was thinking, like, I'm not really qualified to answer that question because I'm not a comic book head, comic book head anymore. For sure. But I do feel like there have been... No, we're qualified. Let's just say that we are. Yeah, boom. I, you know, knowledge. <laughs> um, knowledge, <laughs> dropping it. Um, so, yeah, there have definitely been places that I've come across um, in my research for other things where it's shown... Um, where it's shown ra- uh, characters doing racist things in comic books, like Wolverine using a racial slur or something right. like that. So there, there's definitely, there were definitely writers who were trying to figure out that conversation and trying to build that conversation into it. Um, but I also, you know, I, I look at a lot of the stuff because I, you know, I'm a sucker for any of like the really terrible fantasy, you know, any anything, any any of the nerd shit. And I do notice that whenever people, so I think, um, you know, like Handmaid's Tale was a good example of that, where it's very close to our narrative um, in terms of time, but they very much tried to make it seem very post-racial, in which nobody was concerned whether people were black or white. They were just concerned about whether or not you were, you know, a genetically reproducing woman. And... I'm just like, well, that's a lie. Like, there's definitely racism. Like, we're not, <laughs> we're not done, with, you know, because, you know, but it's, you know, it's one of, another one of those times where it's like, oh, the white people are slaves. Like, this is where we are now. So I think that's part of what happens with X-Men as well, is you get in this place of like, it's the white people who are being discriminated against because they're too powerful. Um, and Oh, that's, that's so that interesting. Can- Do you think that that's, somehow a more insidious narrative or that I guess that's insidious in its own way because we elevate a story like that and then it it somehow negates what's really happening in the world or invalidates it in a weird fantasy way Uh, yeah and again like it's those 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 are the places where I have to investigate white supremacy and say hey here here are other places where this has been indoctrinated into the ways that I think because um what would happen if 
we were just looking at a bunch of mutants who looked like you and me and who had superpowers right. and the rest of the white world was coming after them. Like how, that, how much truer that actually is to the kind of discrimination that we see happening in the world right now. Right. Um, the minute that we turn that discrimination into a cause for white people, we start pretending it's not real. You know, we put it into a fantasy world and, and take it out of the context that is real in which we have all of these real world, these groups of real world superheroes that are trying to fight against injustice and make room for more people uh, and seem to do so with like superpower force and are ignored just because of the color of their skin. Right. You know, you touch upon something so interesting because, again, thinking about the origin of the X-Men beginning in the early 60s, you know, and then they completely, or I don't know how they dealt with it in the comic if they ever did, they bypassed the assassination of Martin Luther King. Yep. They bypassed the assassination of uh, Malcolm X mm -hmm. and, you know, and uh, a lot right. of, uh, yeah, a lot of other great civil rights leaders that are dealing mm -hmm. in real world shit. Yep. But then by the nature of sequential and long form storytelling, they have to, you know, have their own uh, soap opera tragedies within their context. And yeah. the only time that I've ever seen comics deal with real world events, but, you know, time stamping it essentially was when there was a special issue of Amazing Spider-Man for 9-11. For mm -hmm. Do you know mm -hmm. this issue? No. Um, yeah, it was written by J. Michael Straczynski, and it was illustrated by John Romita Jr. in 2001. Mm -hmm. And DC also did a similar thing, but similar tributes, but this was a real, a very, it was like a, a full issue dedicated to it, where uh, uh, all the Marvel heroes and villains were trying to help gather up the, the, uh, the, the ruins of 9-11 um, alongside oh, wow. the first responders, and mm -hmm. then you and ah. you have a and you'd have a character like Doctor Doom, like shedding a tear through his like fucking metal, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. his metal. You know, you know what I mean? Where? Yeah. But to your point too, and not to diminish tragedy because tragedy is tragedy, but also but uh, seeing what type of tragedy that comic book authors are willing to acknowledge, as opposed to you know yep. uh, uh, something else, which is you know. Other tragedy. Why is one tragedy greater or lesser than another? Yeah, and you know how how it would have <clears throat> changed the conversation and the ways that you and I would have grown up if the X Men were, you know, standing at one of King's speeches, right? Know? In in solidarity for the idea that people all need to that that this is a cause that needs to be listened to that we need to stop discrimination. Um, yeah, like that, that would, I think that would have monumentally, like fundamentally changed what we thought we had the capacity to do as kids, if yeah. that had been what we grew up with, and instead of this alternative narrative, you know, not that, not that I regret ever reading the X-Men, right. but I know. it is Com the first time. Comics yeah. are dope. Comics are fun. Comics are dope. Like nobody's <laughs> taking, nobody's taking down comics. Not yet. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> not yet but but yeah like, that it that would it, i just think how dope it would be for something like that to change the narrative oh yeah, yeah. like watching the tv show started to started to do a little bit of that which yeah really and fun. also they got into the uh what policing was which is also interesting too yeah which was brilliant and yeah. uh and black wall street the fact yeah. that they made that something that more of the world was aware of um the the terrorism in tulsa which i don't think most of us you know even bad an eyelash to is as a piece of history yeah so i i like that i think that there are people in the there are definitely people in the comic book world now who are having the conversations that you and i are having here and thinking of how to make that better for the newbies the new comic book readers yeah for sure damn we could talk about this for hours yeah. <laughs> like like literally <laughs> um but what i was coming to a point before were you ever into milestone milestone was a dc comics imprint Back no. in the early '90s, it doesn't it, mean I don't need to go back, though. Oh, gotcha. Well, because um, I I just thought that they were dope. Because at the time, I remember being a kid, going to the comic book shop, and then being really um enamored by the concept where it, it was a creator named 
Dwayne McDuffie, who has since passed mm-hmm. away, Milestone, it was essentially an alternate universe um, parallel to the DC universe. It was a, a multicultural group of heroes. So you'd have like a black version of Superman. There was like um, an, an Asian hero. Uh, uh, I think his name was Zombie. I forget what, what his mm-hmm. whole deal was. There was um, a, a, a group called um, the Syndicate, if I'm remembering correctly. Static, actually. Static, the cartoon, like the character, he came from Milestone. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was specifically about seeing heroes um, and representation in comics in the early 90s. I think a lot of people read it off as cheesy. But then if you were mm. really in the know, you were like all about it. Yeah, well, anyway, it's worth revisiting okay. for the listener because it was it was dope. And then I think there's a yeah. lot of great talent that came I'm out. I'm going to try and revisit it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We'll talk. We'll send some links. <laughs> All, right. All right, so Shayla, thanks for joining us. This is amazing. This is this mad has fun. This so much fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This um, was major. <laughs> this was major. Uh, shout out to the book. So for our listeners, where can they find you? Where can they find the book? Anything else that's coming out for you? For me, I'm easiest to find on Twitter and Instagram at Blue If I Wasn't. Um, I also have a website, ShaylaLawson.com. The book, um, check it out on bookshop.com. I'm pretty much anywhere where you want to buy books, you can order it. Uh, it's in pre order phase now. It comes out on 6 30, so we're very, very close. And it's called This Is Major Notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls, and Being Dope. Awesome. Shayla, thank you so much. Thank you, Rich. So good to see you. Thank you for listening. Make sure you check out Shayla's book, This Is Major. Uh, That is available this month. Her other books, Pantone, and I think I'm ready to see Frank Ocean, are also in the world, so check those out too. You can find the First Generation Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and anywhere else you get your podcast content. So please rate us and drop a review. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. You can find me at rich underscore tu. And it goes without saying, but we are in a crazy and dark time right now. So hopefully we can get out of this tunnel. Donations to the right organizations are important. Some suggestions are the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Equal Justice Initiative and the Bail Project. Those are all really good. And the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, who listeners will know is one of my favorites. Uh, you know, give those guys a shout too. If you hit the streets to protest, stay safe out there. Don't forget to vote. The fight against systemic racism has a big challenge in November in the presidential election. I think we all know what I'm talking about, so we have to stay vigilant. Uh, thanks to Listening Party and Des Jin team for their support. And be safe, everyone. Bye.